We come now to our sermon. This morning we'll be looking at uh, Psalm 123, continuing on in our sermon series, looking at the Psalms of Ascent. Um, We'll talk a little bit about that in uh, the sermon, um, where this psalm falls in the Psalms of Ascent, 120 to 134, this uh, mini playlist in the middle of the Bible, Songs for Travelers. Um, Printed for you in your bulletin is uh, Psalm 123, or if you want to turn there in your Bibles or on your phones. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female servant look to the hand of her mistress. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured no end of contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant of contempt. For the proud. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now thankful for your word, that this is what you use to show us yourself. So we pray in these moments, moved by your spirit, open the eyes of our hearts to see the promises that are ours in the gospel. Show us you, who you are and what you're about, and thus who we are in you. Show us the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray in his name. Amen. I'd like to begin today by quoting from one of the great theologians of history, Lumiere the Candlestick from Beauty and the Beast. So if you're a Disney fan, you, you know who I'm talking about. It's the Candlestick, Beauty and the Beast, the guy who sings, what, Be Our Guest. And if you know, I'm not going to go through the entire plot line of Beauty and the Beast, but here's what's going on. There's a ton of servants at this castle, and they've been cursed because the master of the house, the prince, has been incredibly inhospitable. He's been unkind. And a curse has fallen upon him and the entire household that he's in. And all these household servants have turned into household things. And so one turns into a clock. One turns into uh, a, a teapot. Hopefully there's not like a chamber pot we don't see. Anyway, one turned, yeah, that would be good. Um, and one turns into a candlestick. And then one day after 10 years, this young, brilliant, bright girl, Belle, shows up. And the servants in this house are overjoyed because someone is here for them to serve. They find meaning in their service. They find meaning in their calling. And she's here. And so they break out into a song. And it goes like this. I'm just going to put part of it and I'm not missing. Life is so unnerving for a servant who's not serving. He's not whole without a soul to wait upon. You walked in and it's a guest. It's a guest. Sakes alive. Well, I'll be blessed. Sakes alive, I'll be blessed. They're overjoyed at having Belle there, having someone there. And now they can fulfill their sense of calling to make her feel at home, to serve her with the gifts that they've been unable to use for this long decade. Now, I think Lumiere sings this song, and it has a deep insight, actually, for what it means for us to pursue happiness and good. That human happiness and good come in one way through service of others. And when we can't put our gifts and our resources to work in service of other people, when that's detached from us, we begin to rust. We begin to uh, (laughs) turn inward in, in bad ways. And I bring this up because I think we have a basic idea that's going on in our hearts, in our culture, that maybe we don't even realize is there. That we are the ones that really know what's best for us. 
And what's best for us is doing whatever we want to do, no matter what that means for anybody else. That true freedom means being able to do whatever we want without thinking about the consequences for other people. We follow our hearts, no matter what that means. That the path of happiness might be paved with bad results for other people, but if we can get what we want, that's okay. So this morning, I want to talk about what God says in Psalm 123, because in a way even more profound than Lumiere and be our guest, I think it points us to a light ahead, how to live lives defined by God's generosity. I'm going to break the sermon up into a couple different sections to help get our mind around it. The first one's this, a life turned inward. A life turned inward. Now, I've already quoted Lemire, so I want to turn to another couple of the great theologians of Christian history. Augustine, the uh, African bishop uh, in the 5th century, and uh, Martin Luther, the German firebrand from the 16th. And there are many writings about sin. Not just the bad things that we do, but the way sin has marred our human nature. The way it's torn our hearts to pieces in our world. They talk about this idea of sin like an inward curve. Like sin turns us inward and warps us. The picture is kind of like a gnarled tree. I've mentioned this before. It's a gnarled tree that has sunk its roots down into poisonous water and it's turned in on itself. Human beings are created to be like trees whose branches are turned outward, receiving sunlight from the glory of God. We're like trees that are meant to dig our roots deeply into His love and His mercy and find our nourishment and thriving there. And being turned outward toward God will turn outward toward others as well. But the impact of sin means that we're like trees that have turned inward. Our branches are curved in on ourselves. Instead of being turned out toward God to receive nourishment from Him, we look for it from ourselves. But trees turned inward are gnarled and nasty. <laughs> they don't grow. And trees that have roots dug down into poisonous water that cannot nourish, they shrivel up and die. So the image is that sin has warped our hearts where we're turned inward, where we're sunk down into poisonous things that cannot nourish us, and it alienates us from God and everyone else. Now, I think we see that in this song. It's why the songwriter has cried out for God's mercy in the first place. We see that where it falls in the Psalms of Ascent. Now, we've looked through them in the last few weeks. You may remember Psalm 120, the very first track in this playlist, begins in a place where the singer is crying out because all he sees around him are lies, deceit, violence, and war. He looks around in the world he inhabits. And he says, I, this is just tearing me to pieces. I need to go somewhere else. And so he sets off on a journey to Jerusalem. In Psalm 121, the next one is him traveling with his friends and family. And they're encouraging each other along the way. In Psalm 122 that we looked at last week, they have finally arrived to the city, Jerusalem. Which literally means city of peace or the habitation of peace. And they're rejoicing because he's like, I have left this place that is trades and lies and deceit and war and violence. And I'm here in the place where the burning torch of God's promise burns. Where I'm going to hear about his love for me. In Psalm 124 or 123 that we've read, it's like he's arrived into the city. And this is, uh, you know, they didn't have hotel rooms back then. He's gotten to his hotel room. He's taken his bags. He's set them down. And it's the sigh of relief. He's here. 
It's like if you've ever been in the car and you're traveling to the beach and you've been in the car for too long and you finally get out, you open the door, you take that first big breath of ocean air. That's what Psalm 123 is. He's there. The Psalms of Ascent begin with a longing for something else. A realizing that the inward turn that has happened in humanity has broken us in a fundamental way and it's wearing us out. And here, the speaker in this psalm speaks about ridicule, contempt, pride, and arrogance. All these things he wishes to flee from and he wishes to be turned from this inward curve and renewed, to be turned outward to receive what? God's mercy, God's mercy. The thing that our branches long for, the thing that our roots long for, which leads me to my second section, a turn outward. A turn outward. The good news of this song is that the singer has realized the problem and he has the key. He's realized the problem and he has the key. The way to break this cycle of being turned inward is to be turned outward to God. This is the neural tree being bent out from within itself to bask in the nourishment of sunlight. This is the tree and its roots finding pure water. And so how does this song begin? Verse 1, I lift my eyes to you. He has turned his eyes pointed inward, outward, and he lifts his eyes to who? God. He has lived in a graceless place where God's mercy sometimes to be seems to be in the background at best. And now he's here. He's arrived in Jerusalem at this festival and he's there to worship and he's there to hear how God is at work to bring peace in this world. And he has found what his soul has longed for. And he looks up and he finds mercy. Mercy. He describes it like a servant receiving from the hand of his master. Or a servant receiving from the hand of his mistress. And these are ideas that we shrink from. You might actually have a translation in front of you that uses the word slave. It's an idea we shrink from, and rightly so. We say servant or slave, and they carry nothing but negative connotations for us because how people have abused others. How people with power have used their power to squash and oppress those underneath them. At the time of this song, being a servant, though, wasn't a lifelong thing in Israel. Being a servant wasn't a lifelong thing. It wasn't a generational thing. It wasn't you're a servant, and your kids are servants, and their kids are servants. In ancient Israel, there were actually tons of protections put into place that kept people from being taken advantage of to build wealth. Protections put in place to protect families that had fallen on hard times from falling into generational poverty. So in ancient Israel, the way someone would become a servant would be to sell their services to someone else for a period of time. It's kind of like being an independent contractor in a sense. You go to somebody and you say, I'll work for you. For this period of time, for this amount of money, and I'll do this job. They would agree upon the services in the span of time. And it was incredibly regulated. In ancient Israel, it reset every seven years. Every seven years, every servant went free. Every seven years, every debt was wiped clean. And there was no question of, do they deserve it? Have they kept their payments up? No, seven years, it's done. It's gone. So it was incredibly regulated. There were protections in place. So what I think this psalm is doing, when it uses that language, it's not inviting us to look at God and to grovel before Him like we're thinking we're a servant. And, oh, is He going to give us mercy? Is He going to give us something? Why? Because a servant doesn't expect 
mercy from their master. They don't expect anything. They work. They do their so-called obligation. So I ask you, what would mercy be in this master-servant relationship at this time? It would be the master who is owed work and money. The contract has been signed. I will work for you for this amount of years, for this amount of money. It's the master saying, here's all the money we agreed on. You don't have to work. It's receiving this pay, not out of obligation, not in a paycheck kind of way. It's the employer. It's us walking into our job on Monday, and they're saying, here's your salary for the next five years. Go live your life. That's the picture of mercy here. Not a paycheck. Not a paycheck that you earn. Not an obligation you work at. It's a profound mercy of receiving something you haven't worked for. I think that's here in this song because notice what the singer asks for. He asks for mercy. He doesn't say, God, I've worked so hard. Give me what, I've owed, what I'm owed. He doesn't say, I've put in the time. Give me what I deserve. He asks for mercy. By very definition, mercy is getting what we don't deserve. He knows in his heart he has no claim on God. He knows that if he starts talking, if he goes to the spreadsheet and starts looking at time put in and time taken away, if he starts doing the math, he's going to come out in the negative. He knows it. And so he shows up and he asks for mercy. It's a profound thing. But here's an even more profound thing in this song and a lesson for us as well. When he asks for mercy, he has no doubt that God will give him. None at all. He asks for mercy and he has no doubt God will give it. The singer comes with confidence, but it's not the boldness of a perfect man asking for what belongs to him. His confidence is not in himself. His confidence is in the God who has shown him his mercy before, is sustaining in him in his mercy now, and will continue to have mercy on him and carry him tomorrow. That's his confidence. He doesn't walk in asking for a paycheck. He says, you are merciful, God. You abound in mercy. You've shown me mercy before, and I know right here I am finding mercy because it is who you are. That's true of us, friends. We can't come to God with an expectation that we earn a hearing. We don't walk in this door on Sunday with our chest puffed out, really proud of the stuff we've done. We walk in as people that are beyond sinful, beyond selfish. We have used our words to hurt people. We have thought things that are wrong. We have done things that are wrong. But when we walk into this door, we don't have to walk in with our heads on low, groveling. We don't have to <laughs> you know, crawl into our seats and bow our heads low. No, we walk in with boldness because God has shown us his mercy and he will show it again. And that's our confidence. We cannot come to God with an expectation that we've earned a hearing ourselves. And guys, if we continue to live our lives with this idea of God as an employer that gives us a paycheck that matches what we've done, then we'll never come to him with confidence. It'll never happen. Because we'll always be bracing ourselves for the day that we finally get what we really deserve. But in Jesus, God gives us an invitation to leave that. To leave it behind. To, to put that way of thinking to death. He gives us an invitation to walk the unknown, unknown road of the future in the presence of our known God and His intentions for us. He gives us the in invitation to just jump 
to crave his mercy and goodness like our bodies crave water and die without it, and to approach the holy God who is truly holy, who is enthroned in heaven, the King of kings, with the knowledge, with the assurance that will be received, not just as servants, but as Jesus said in our call to worship in John 15, as friends, as friends, and the bond of that friendship is his mercy. There's no question of God's mercy to us. God has reached to where we live to give them to us. And we can be confident and rest assured in His mercy. It is not here today and gone tomorrow. His goodness and His love for us is a never-ending fountain that flows to us. And the invitation is for us to sink our roots deep into it. To open our arms as branches out to receive. And that leads me to my last section this morning. How can we live lives turned outward? Because we live in a world where, in a sense, it's not safe to be turned outward. We turn outward and we're jabbed at. <laughs> the psalm they talk about, it talks about pride and arrogance and content. It's a dangerous world to be open and vulnerable. It's a dangerous world to not be turned in. In fact, a lot of our being turned inward is a defense mechanism because we live in a world that wounds us. But here's the thing. God gives us His truth this morning. God gives us His truth all the time that we might not buy into the lies. He gives us His truth so that when, we, when our hearts begin to lie to us, when we, when we begin to lie to ourselves and think that we're just what people have done to us, or we're just defined by what we've done wrong. When our hearts begin to believe the verdicts that have been passed on us by other people. That we're less than because of this, that, or the other. We don't have to buy in. When we begin to lose focus and we start thinking about what we deserve, we can say, no. My hope is not a paycheck from God. My hope is in His mercy. His mercy alone. Period. It's so easy for us, I think, to live in other areas of our life. Maybe we can say amen to this on a Sunday morning, but I think it's really easy for us to walk into Monday morning or walk into a world because we live in a world where every other place defines us by what we do. We receive paychecks from our jobs based on the work we do. We go to school when we work and we get grades. That's literally marking us down by what we've done. So I think it's easy for us to inhabit the world that we live in and forget that all I'm talking about this morning is true. And what happens is that sinks into and it begins to color our idea about our relationship with God. And we begin to live lives as if the gospel isn't true. We start to think that the goal of the Christian life is get to the place where we don't need God's mercy. That he gave us mercy one time, but his goal is really to get us to stand on our own two feet and be able to walk our way forward. To measure our worth and our value on what we accomplish. Or to measure other people and their worth and value by what they accomplish. But what the church is designed to be is a forest full of trees that have been turned out. We're being nourished together and we're bearing fruit together. And what we're doing here is creating a community, or what I should say is God's Spirit is creating a community that has eyes wide open to the tendency to go back to other fountains for our roots to chase after poisonous water. And we together point each other to being nourished and carried by His mercy. We are turned outward to be merciful to others. To use another image, 
We walked into the kingdom of God by the door that Jesus had kicked open. And we walked in because somebody else held the door open for us. And so what our job is, is to stand at that door and hold it open for everybody else. Because there's mercy in here. There is mercy here. And it runs deeper than any sin that we have. And we pray that this church... As small as it is, as young as it is, as it grows, continues to be a community of people defined by God's mercy. Defined by God's mercy in every way. So we encourage each other along the way. We point each other not to what we've done. We don't say, hey, you're not really that bad. No, we point ourselves and each other to Jesus and the sureness of his mercy. When the lies are loud, we crank the gospel up. We just turn it up full blast. Because here's the truth, and I've quoted this before. I got this from a pastor named Jack Miller who was in uh, uh, Philadelphia for years. And he used to say this, and this is a good thing to remember. Cheer up, for you are a far worse sinner than you could ever imagine. But in Jesus, you are far more loved than you could ever dream. Amen. If we start digging deeply in our hearts, we're going to uncover stuff that we can't believe is there. Stuff that we shrink from even thinking about. Stuff we definitely don't say out loud. But the reality is, our sureness of stepping forward is never on the basis of our own performance, our own works. It's always the mercy of God. A mercy that runs deeper. A mercy that will outlast our sins. And we live lives, day in, day out, that are characterized by rejoicing in the never-ending mercy 